Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. We speak with all kinds of unique and interesting individuals in the world of entrepreneurship. And today is my conversation with Mark Bowden. He is one of the world's top 30 body language professionals and the founder of Truth Plane, a communication training company. He has a very impressive client list, including business executives, politicians, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the list goes on. He has a very popular TEDx talk, which I highly recommend you search for. And in this episode, Mark and I discuss how to leverage body language for all kinds of things, including how to sell more effectively, how to build trust and engagement, deepen relationships faster, maybe you're at a networking event, in the office, whatever, and why politicians, including Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, and others rely heavily on their own body language to persuade others. We also talk about Mark's best-selling new book, Truth and Lies, which you can find on shelves everywhere. So without delay, here we go, the very entertaining Mark Bowden. All right. So the obvious question for me as a starting point is, how, how does one go from where you were? And I did a little preliminary research. I know you have a background in performing arts. How do you get from that to a world expert in body language? Yeah, I guess it doesn't seem obvious to everybody. <laughs> the, the route to expert in, in, uh, in body language behavior is not necessarily an obvious route. And those of us that are in this area, you know, a lot of us have come from sometimes FBI and military and, and, and law enforcement backgrounds. For me, it's a little bit different, which means that I, I see things a little bit differently. And I focused very much on at the start of my career on how you use body language to influence and persuade, because essentially, as you say, my background started off in performance in, I would say, how you tell stories with pictures. I mean, first of all, back a little way, I was quite obsessed with animal behavior and human behavior and why we do what we do and the the results of when we do what we do. And this came down into telling stories with pictures, what many people call animation, but essentially how you make something that isn't living look and feel to a human being like it's living. What's the influence and persuasion of the movement of pictures around us that can convince us as human beings that something that isn't alive is actually alive? And that happens a lot in the world of entertainment and, you know, the imagination of, of animation. So I got really niched in that. 
and got really expert in that. And then, you know, a number of years ago, possibly, you know, almost two decades ago, actually, people start coming to me and say, can you do this with, with business people and politicians and and can you not not make them uh, look alive when they're actually dead? Though that that might have been mm-hmm. what they were after. But essentially, in terms of presentation, the telling of stories in business and politics, the bar was pretty low compared to what we were able to do in the entertainment and performance area. Did you start bringing on CEOs or leaders as private clients right away? What came first? Yeah, so I think what came first, if I recall, call right, was actually more kind of senior executives. And so from that, so I train, you know, people who were on the, you know, executive board of, of, of companies, they'd then go, oh, if only our salespeople or our other leadership or our managers knew this stuff, or, or they'd go, you know, people aren't getting their message across to me in the boardroom. And if only you could make them better at, at that. And so from doing actually quite a lot of group, small group or one-on-one training, then it opened up into doing large keynotes, you know, anything up to, you know, hundreds of people to almost tens of thousands of people in rooms together. So there's big keynotes that I do. There's one-on-one training and then there's group training as well. Some people I only see for a short amount of time, whether it's a one-hour keynote or a one-hour session to get them ready for some specific event. And in some cases, I've got clients who have been working with me for years and getting progressively better. In fact, you know, in in many cases, some of the best speakers out there now in terms of politics and business. What does the progress trajectory look like? So if you're a CEO and you just need a couple of quick hacks what is the length of time that a client would have to work with you in order to have the biggest impact on what they're trying to convey? Well, certainly the fundamentals of, of what I train people in, in, in terms of being able to come across to any audience, to be able to stand out, for example, to be able to win trust, to gain credibility, to essentially come across as calm and assertive in front of any audience. That can be done in, in just a few minutes. Now, the, the reality is, is, though, under pressure, will you be able to hold on to that technique? And in many cases, you won't unless I spend more time with you and we try and understand what the unique pressures are for you, how we know that they're coming. And we go back to those fundamental techniques and help you as the client understand when you feel these pressures and you know what that feeling is or you know the environments that that give you that anxiety or pressure or confuse you a little more than others. Here's the techniques you always go to rather than uh, stepping back into your, I guess, your, your, your normal behaviors. Because what you're doing when you're performing under pressure is something abnormal, essentially. You don't seek that pressure. It's a result of the situation that you're in. And so you have to learn new behaviors to perform in that situation. They will never be first nature for you. We're trying to learn behaviors that are really second and third nature for you. You have to cause them to happen. So as I say, those can be done quite quickly, but whether you can sustain them under pressure, that's a whole different type of work. I've seen you know, the TEDx talk and I've seen you live. 
I know that in, in terms of evolutionary psychology, the audience is making a quick sort of snap judgment about, or, about whether or not they like you or not the minute mm-hmm. you step onto the stage, right? So when you talk about winning trust and credibility and symmetry and all those things, what are the things that the speaker must do in the first, say, 30 to 60 seconds in order to gain that trust? Mm. So I think the first thing to do is to show open body language, to show actually physically that you are vulnerable. And vulnerability is different from being nervous or scared or anxious. Uh, vulnerability just shows that in, in, in very fundamental human physiology, it shows that the vulnerable points on your body, what we might also call the kill points on your body, are open. Now, they're not being overexposed in close proximity to the the audience. That would show arrogance. It would show that you didn't think the audience have any power. But given when you're on that stage or you're in that meeting that there is a certain level of potentially power differential between you and that audience, and power is certainly at play, if you're somebody who shows up with no problem about exposing those vulnerable points on the body it's a subconscious very primal indicator to the other people's in people in the room with you that there are no predators in the room you're not a predator you don't think they're a predator you don't think there's a predator elsewhere it actually indicates to them at an unconscious very deep quite profound level in terms of then the decisions that they'll make around you and your content it indicates that it is a low risk environment in high risk environments will tend to minimize the size of our body and close in on those vulnerable kill points on the body or we'll go in the opposite direction and we'll open right out to a level which kind of overexposes it 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 overcompensates you're becoming overly large for the situation maybe even taking others territory while you do that and that again may show aggression or arrogance neither of which i would say are calm and assertive neither of which are very likely to win trust and credibility so you know the it's a it's a simple simple one but uh, just exposing your body a little more and showing vulnerability is is a huge key to it and it's what you call the, the truth plane, right? You're coming in with open hands, sort of showing the audience that you're open, nothing in your pockets, no tools, no weapons, so to speak. You're not crossing your arms in front of your chest. You don't have your hands in your back or front pockets. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's open palm gestures. That is, just as you say, that's the signal of no tools, no weapons, nothing in my hands. And open palm gestures at exactly navel height is what I call the truth plane. That's the horizontal plane of what I call truth. It's not to say that when people gesture there, they are being truthful with you. They could be absolutely being dishonest with you. However, gestures which are open palmed at navel height will trigger you into feeling like they're being honest, truthful, 
authentic, real with you. I mean, when I when I do these techniques with an audience and I get them to call out words that describe me as a speaker, as I do these gestures, these open palm gestures at navel height, people will say, well, you're, you're, you're very authentic. You're very honest with us. And then I indicate to them, well, no, I'm just doing this on purpose. You have a theory. What's interesting is it triggers your theory that I am authentic, your theory that I'm truthful. Your theory, however, feels very real to you. Whether it is or not, the reality is a very powerful one for you. So I wouldn't want people, you know, walking around the planet going, ah, every time I see somebody doing open palm gestures at navel height, I will know that they are being honest with me. Or you'll feel that they are, and they may well be. They may be being very honest with you or very dishonest with you or something in between. However, I guarantee you will feel they're being very honest honest with you that's this this gesture and certainly this gesture plane is designed to trigger that in you simply because nobody in their first nature in their instinct will ever gesture at that height when they're under stress and pressure they will drop their hands down by their sides minimize or maximize their body or bring their hands up higher to chest height or head height and again minimize or maximize their body and they, they sort of default in, into thinking that you're one of three things, right? You fall into one of three categories. Can sure. you explain to the listeners, you know, how quickly we make a snap judgment of that nature and what are the three categories we're actually evaluating the, the person on? Sure. So we make instant judgments, snap judgments about the people around us and we decide whether we should approach or avoid them, whether they are benefit to us or risk and we actually find when we do this approach and avoid response not only is it physical but it's psychological as well we'll start to approach or avoid physically that person and their content and psychologically approach and avoid them now i would say there are actually four categories i believe that people go into one is friend you know are you a benefit Mm -hmm. to me the other is predator risk Are you going to take away from me? The third one is, are you a potential mate? Is there a good genetic code, good health around you? Could we procreate together and carry on our genetic code? And and the fourth one, which we tend to tend to forget because it's it's the category we put most people into is one of indifference. We just don't even notice them. You know, if you think about going along to some networking meeting, the reality is, is most people you never meet, you don't pay any attention to because they haven't triggered friend, they haven't triggered enemy, they haven't triggered mate. And therefore, your brain at a fundamental level has made a decision that says they're of no benefit, they're of no risk, just take them off the radar. Don't even think about them again. So those are, those are the categories. Now, the interesting thing for me is that you can start to behave in such a way that you're more likely to trigger one of those categories than another instead of accidentally falling into one of those categories. Now, there's no problem in being in any one of those categories. All of those categories are useful at times to be in. But in the world of being an entrepreneur, say, in the world of business, you might find that one of those categories at some point is more useful than others. And it could be useful to know how to trigger yourself into that category 
with an audience, with an individual, so that they start to shape and frame everything that comes with you, your ideas, your product, your service, your leadership, whatever it might be. They shape and frame that with the categorization that you have triggered for them. Let's talk about the the fun one. So mate, sexual yeah. partner. Yeah. What are the signals that someone would give maybe sometimes unknowingly to somebody that would put us into the category of potential sexual partner? Anytime as male or female that we start shifting our hair in front of others, it's used in mating displays in what we might call uh, flirtation as a signal to say, look, I've got good genetic code here and here's a clear sign of it. And a certain, and you can see that I'm in a certain age range as well. So, so here's my genetic code. Here's my age range. Have a look at the history of my health because the roots of my hair will look different from the tips of it, depending on what kind of health I've had. And also the nutrition of it. If it's glossy, if it's big in color, whatever that color is, that denotes high mineral content, high fat content, high protein content in mm. the diet. And therefore, I come from a land, I've got good genetic code, good health. I come from a land where there's a good amount of food resource. If we're to mate together now, then the offspring stand a really good chance of getting hold of that same resource as mine. Well, of course, if you're anything like me, you can get all of that out of a, a bottle from your local uh, local <laughs> pharmacist. And we've got about 7.6 billion people on the planet right now. So if you're an entrepreneur, my guess is, is you're trying to make contact with a few more of those people, not all 7.6 billion, but, but certainly you're looking at a, a fairly healthy proportion of that that you want to make contact with. Understand, if I were gambling, I would gamble that they're going to be indifferent to you, unless you can give them cause to put you in one of those three categories. I'm not suggesting mate is the one to go into, though uh, you know there is no bad behavior. There's just results that you wanted or didn't want, and it will get you attention. Maybe not the right attention, not maybe not the correct attention, the most useful attention, the most appropriate attention, but it will get you attention. Okay, so so if you're let's talk about the sales executive because you brought it up. So the first impression that that sales executive makes is critical being at be it at a meeting or a conference or a networking event whatever. What could that sales executive do in the first minute of meeting somebody say at a conference to up their game yeah lovely so let's just say they're meeting somebody at a conference and they're and they're meeting them or their their objective there is to engage people in a, a sales process they're looking mm -hmm. to sell to those people you need to get them into a curious state and the first way you can do that is open palm gestures navel height to get them give them a sense of it's a low-risk environment. And then I want to put on top of this something a little more subtle, a little more uh, advanced, which is what tends to happen, I would suggest, as default with salespeople, is when they're with a potential buyer, is they start doing the behaviors of selling. They start mm. doing the behaviors of, of pushing pushing the object, pushing the idea, pushing the concept, because they're salespeople. And the idea is, is, is I have something and you need to have that in order for me to do the sale. I suggest to my clients, 
is actually what they start to do is buying behaviors. They start doing the body language, the nonverbal behavior of somebody who's buying rather than selling. Because the potential buyer, if the behavior is clear and consistent, they'll start to mirror that behavior unconsciously. They'll start to copy the buying behaviors. So, uh, you know, when I tend to talk to people, in fact, let me let me ask you, uh, Adam, when you're buying something, whether it's something big or something small, is there a kind of a generalization you could make about your your behavior? What's your behavior like when you're buying something or you're in that process? Calculated. Yeah. Strategic. Yeah. Somewhat reserved. Yeah. When I think about, I mean, if I think about myself, I, I don't know that I know myself well enough to say I'm in this default body language mode as a buyer. And my next question to your point was going to be, how does somebody mimic the body language of a buyer as a seller? And what, you know, I, I guess I don't, what I want to know is beyond what I've already said about myself, what other display modes might I be showcasing? Yeah. So, so we're doing that process exactly now. How do I display the behaviors of a buyer? First of all, I say to myself, what do I do when I'm buying? And you said that you, for example, were calculated. Mm -hmm. And that starts to suggest to me that things are very clear for you. You're going through a clear process. And that's what I'm doing physically now as I talk to you. I'm almost marking out the process that I'm going through, even in thinking about talking with you. Now, that's very different from what I'm going to do now, which is I'm now going to do the behaviors of somebody I believe is now selling, pushing to you, because I have something that I think you need, uh, whether you want it or not, you need it. And so now I'm doing behaviors with my hands, which are almost prodding, they're almost poking, they're, they're certainly pushing at you and presenting at you. And I'm now going back to the behaviors which I think are more considered and strategic, as you said. Now, is one of me better to be around than the other, do you feel? Yeah, the latter. Right. But understand, as a salesperson, this feels like it should work more because I'm selling you right now and I'm called a salesperson. If I were just in, in, in retail sales, for example, just to take an easy example, I could start monitoring everybody who, who I can and see which ones of them go to a checkout with a product and I start monitoring what are the behaviors that the ones who end up at the checkout start doing? What do they do? And how do I do more of those to give the ones that aren't naturally falling into that process something very clear to follow? So I, I, I think we're as, when we're doing sales, we're essentially sales leaders. And in order to be a leader, you must be followable. That's the most important thing, that you're Have followable. You yeah. Have you, have you actually, have you done that work with, with retailers before? Like as a yeah. consultant, that would be really fascinating to understand, you know, what's the body language that the best salespeople in the retail store are using that's resulting in a bump in people at the cash versus 
the body language of those that aren't selling? What right. are the patterns that you see? Oh, what are the patterns that? Yes. Yeah. So, so some classics that I've seen is first of all, the best salespeople don't stop the people getting in the store. The mm. worst salespeople literally put up barriers to people getting round. Mm. They absolutely get in their way. They stop them moving into the air. They stop them getting to the back of the store. So, so you see people kind of walk in and you've got these, these, these staff kind of lurking around the store, blocking people from getting to what they like, blocking them from getting all the way to the back of the store. Once you've got somebody to the back of the store, they'll spend a long, long time getting out. But if, you, if they can only get a few feet in before they get kind of accosted, questioned, interrogated – then the chances of them seeing risk to their process of investigation uh, goes up, and they usually just turn around and go out. Yeah, they'll do the job just looking and turn yeah. around, go yeah. out. Yeah. But if you can be welcoming, if you can show people that they are welcome in there, if you can help and guide them, or certainly give them a clear avenue and stream towards further into the store they'll spend a whole bunch more time there if they spend more time there they can investigate more if you can help them with those behaviors of investigation you know so for example a great example would be let's just say it's 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 a clothing store let's just take that if you were to feel adam that you had investigated your purchase well and you're after one item of clothing, if you have seen just one, have you investigated well? If you've seen three, have you investigated well or better or worse? If you've seen five, have you investigated well or better or worse? Does the number of things that you get to investigate improve or, or not improve how you feel you've, well you've investigated? What do you think? Yes, of course. Yeah. The, the okay. more, the better. So if I just got you stuff to look at, would that help your investigation? Indeed. Yeah. So this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. And in right. this world of, of hyper digital communication, how does one salesperson that's trying to win a client on, say, a Zoom meeting or conference call or something that isn't face-to-face -face, how does somebody uh, apply some of these techniques when you can't see them physically yeah exactly so you know the most important thing is you need to understand that the majority of the data that somebody needs in order to make a decision about you should you be trusted or not the majority of that data is missing from mm -hmm from that situation so they are more likely to default to negatives about you the product the service the leadership whatever it is unless they hear words that add intention or emotion or they hear more in your voice that adds intention or emotion and look the easy way to augment your voice to get more out of it to have more effect with it is to move your body so, for example, at the moment, I, I, I have my hands at uh, navel height doing open palm gestures, even when I'm talking to you and I'm moving my hands symmetrically. And that's causing my voice to do certain things and my brain to think in a certain way. 
And what I'm going to do now is just allow my hands to hang down by my side and not, not move them at all. This is easier for my body to do, I guess, because it's less energy for it. I am very involved and concerned about this call, this interview going well. I am very present at, at the moment. It's just you don't have any of the triggers that trigger you into believing that to be true. Now what I'm going to do is just move my hands to open palm gestures at navel height and just allow that to influence the way my voice is coming across and the specific way that I'm thinking. My intention has not changed. I am no less, no more present with you right now, but my guess is, is you're making new predictions about me. Right, right. Okay, so mindful of time, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. So your your client list is impressive. You know, politicians and, and CEOs and Fortune 500 companies, prime ministers, etc. This is very, very cool. I mean, I, I'd like to get into the political leaders first. Who, who's got great body language out there and why? And who has say, not so good body language, but is still somewhat revered in the political landscape. Sure. Uh, let me see if I can do both together in one person. Donald Trump, current president of the U.S., mm -hmm. has incredible body language and bizarre body language at the same time. And some of his behavior is absolutely thought out and ordered, even when we think it isn't. In fact, some of the stuff that we think, oh, I, that must be an accident, I, I, I guarantee it isn't. It's purposely thought out to have an effect. And then there's other times when it just hasn't been thought out at all. And it can be sometimes very difficult to know which is which, is which if, you, if you don't have the, the background or the, the skills to be able to observe when somebody is performing and when they're not. Because understand, a good performer, you will not know they're performing. You just, you just won't. There's, there's people who you've seen performing body language and you'll have gone, oh, they look so fake. Why? Because they're just bad at it. Just haven't practiced it enough or they haven't been taught well enough. There's others who we know are performing body language and a certain audience will be going, that's absolutely real. That's absolutely spot on. This person is being completely authentic. I guarantee they're not. They're putting on those behaviors. They're just really good at it, really practiced, really experienced, and they've put in the time. I would say that Trump is a great example of that. I'm personally not a huge supporter in any way of, of his policies and ideas and, and much of what he says, if anything. But I have to say, an incredible performer, an incredible ability to decide on his behavior and keep it really consistent in order to attract and retain and communicate to the audience that matters most to him. And then sometimes he just goes way off piste. He's, he's all over the place. And that's, and there's never been anybody in the political field that has been as, I think, as accurate and inaccurate as him with the body language 
all in one go. That's why he's he's extraordinary to watch. And, and there's all, always a lot of commentary on his behavior because you never usually get, there's nothing abnormal that he does. It's just normally you don't get all of that packed into one place in such a short space of time. Yeah, I think he's just great at oscillating from one extreme to the other in general. So yeah, uh, the body language is consistent with that. Let me ask you about the famous Trump Trudeau being yeah. Canadian, uh, the Trump Trudeau relationship and the infamous handshake that they had. What was it about that handshake that made it so unique? The first handshake that they that they uh, had where where Trudeau came out of his vehicle, Trudeau's car on the opposite side to Trump in order that he would have a long enough run up towards Trump to be able to come in at speed with velocity with his arm outstretched and locked so essentially Trump could not try and pull him over and use that technique that Trump has of of trying to bring a another leader of any sort off balance immediately by yanking their hand so that was a great uh, technique by Trudeau in order to make sure that the the world couldn't see that picture of Trump pulling him off off balance and mm-hmm. then there was quite a nice little kind of jostle for who could who could take the control of the elbow and then the shoulder and then Trudeau decided to take control of the of the upper shoulder and do a suppressive gesture so there so you get this first of all this tussle for who might be able to be on balance and on balance with the with the handshake and then you get who's going to take control of the body and the arm contrast that with the bromance between Obama and Trudeau right uh, that seems like even if you didn't you know if you just watch the videos between the two politicians Obama and Trudeau and then Trudeau and Trump if you didn't hear any of the words and you just were watching these videos on mute the body language just says it all, right? Well, for sure, because you've got there with 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 the the latter two politicians, you have people who are at a, a philosophical congruity. They think the same ways, roughly about the same things. Whereas, you know, Trump is a is a nationalist. Trudeau, uh, not so much. A bit, bit bit of a bigger vision, maybe about the the world. There's there's essentially a philosophy there that isn't going to match up and so of course you see they know that of each other it's easy to know that and so you you kind of know that you're you're meeting somebody who you're either aligned with or you're antagonistic with and of course that plays out in the in the body language and just as you say one of the the best ways to start reading it is turn the sound off so you can just see the pictures and then note down you know what do i make of that of that picture what's my first assumption about the relationship given just this picture then when you add the words in that people are saying and the context you often start to get a different picture it gets nuanced or sometimes ideas will have to turn around for you sometimes you have to suspend some of those early judgments in the picture simply because it's it's a bit of a misnomer that that the body never lies the body is brilliant at lying we, we wouldn't be able to tell any lies if the body couldn't lie. And we all manage many points in our life to get away with lying. If the body couldn't lie, we wouldn't be able to do that. So, of course, the body lies. And any of these politicians will be, uh, at some points, 
trying to cause their body to lie in some way, not necessarily a, a huge lie, but enough to project a, a sense in them that that may not be as prescient as we as we'd hope in their mind. You know, what's interesting about the the U.S. political landscape. I mean, thinking back to the Democratic primary. Yes. And watching Bernie Sanders, my theory was that he actually lost the primary because of his body language. Right. Like I watch Sanders give whatever speech he was giving, and each and every time the guy is hunched over a podium as if he's about to die any second. Sure. And I think it plays into the minds of the voters. I mean, he's he's got great policies, he's a smart man, he's very compelling in a lot of ways, but in terms of body language, in my opinion, he's a 1 out of 10. Yeah, so I would add to what you're saying there and say he's very asymmetrical with his gestures as well, which means if he has policies which are in any way complicated, if they're not simple, or if they are simple and you have asymmetrical gesture, they will feel more complicated, even though they're simple. So his asymmetry would not have helped him get across very simple ideas. If his ideas were more complicated for the audience, they would have seemed very complicated and many would have tuned out, not even listened to what he's saying, simply because the image and the sound together becomes such a neural load. And, and there's so much else for us to, to do and, and think about. Understand, when we watch TV or we're watching you know, stuff on our devices, we're, in comp we're always doing something else. Who, who, who sits down to watch the debates, for example, and decides, I will do nothing else, nothing else, but concentrate on the policies that are being put across? I guarantee we're all doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to influence and persuade people because they're in a bit of a twilight zone of concentration, they're not critically thinking as they hope they are. Yeah, they said, hey, let's sit down, watch this debate and really work out, you know, who's best. They had critical thinking intentions, but I guarantee they didn't do critical thinking. They started relying on their gut instinct about things. And that gut in instinct is being very much run by the pictures that we see around us and the music that people's voices make and the context of all of this, not the, the, the meat of the content itself. I would say content is, is, is decided way more by context than we often imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think about a lot of companies of, in terms of what they're selling. I mean, is, is you know, to pick any competitive industry for that matter. And across the board, the products and or services don't really differ all that much. It's the context or the emotion that really drives the purchaser to buy from one brand or the other. Well, for sure. So, so you're kind of telling me that basically if I... If I do spectral analysis of chemical analysis of washing powders, it's all going to come out pretty much the same, isn't it? Everybody knows that you could literally take the brand from one and stick it on the other and nobody would know the difference mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's like it's just washing powder. Now, why do we buy? Why do we decide to go with one organization than another? 
Well, the, you know, it's the brand, it's the idea, it's the feeling that's put around stuff. And the salesperson at this point can become incredibly important. That relationship with a real human being who we feel is there to help us. We feel has, just as you said, some empathy for us. They understand us. They're standing in our shoes. They're looking from the direction that we're looking and going, let's look at let's look at this carefully. Let's make the right decision about this. Not buy this, buy this, buy this. Yep. Okay, so sensitive to time, I want to move to your book, Truth and Lies, What People Are Really Thinking. It's the title of your new best-selling book. Can you give listeners a little bit of a purview and maybe highlight a favorite chapter of yours that we might be drawn to? Yeah, sure, for sure. Uh, so look, Truth and Lies, What People Are Really Thinking, it is uh, a book on how to get closer to the truth and lies of what people are really thinking and feeling around you. And very importantly, your own truth and lies around what you think people are thinking and feeling around you. It's a, a classic body language book in many ways in that it'll give you an understanding of some of the signals that to look out for and what they may mean, but it puts them into a critical thinking process that actually you could use in all areas of your life, really a process about how to think better about thinking about people, how to think more clearly and how to think more accurately. So look, you know, it's split, split into three parts. One is, uh, is on dating and the other is on friends and family and the other is on business simply because in those three areas are where the most important relationships in your life reside, if not all of the important relationships. And it's got many, many chapters in there that simply look at classic situations that we've all been in when we think we know what's going on. We think we've got the right reading. And then it takes us through how we may have the right reading, we may not, and how we'd get closer to the truth and lies of that. I mean, just to highlight some, I guess, you know, some stuff that's in many of the chapters that people really love is the stuff around deceit. How do you know somebody is lying? or not. So for example, we've all heard that, you know, if you see somebody touching their nose, you know, that's an indicator of deceit. And it's interesting that nose idea because there's a, a mythical uh, character called Pinocchio, little pine cone. I was going to say, Pinocchio yeah. theory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Pinocchio theory, which is, hey, wouldn't it be great if, if when somebody was lying, there was a very clear indicator like their nose grew long there is no such indicator and <laughs> and and just because of this touching the nose thing and rubbing the nose thing it's getting to the time of year now certainly in in, in my part of the world where the pollen's getting in the air and so i'm going to spend <laughs> a lot of the coming weeks if not months rubbing my nose as an expert in body language and many people will think, wow, he's being deceitful at that point, not understanding the context of the human body the, uh, and what pollen does to, to some of us and antihistamines. So, you know, if we take into context that I have allergies and it's that time of year, suddenly the whole rubbing of the nose and deceit obviously makes no sense whatsoever. And yet... Do a search on how do you tell if somebody's lying and you'll get a million and one articles on the internet saying, watch out for them rubbing their nose. 
Never has there been so much nonsense talked. So, so you know, this time of year, if you see people rubbing their nose, just uh, just check out if they have uh, allergies or not before you jump to the conclusion that they're cheats and liars. So what is okay? So in the context of the business relationship segment of the book, I think it was the third segment. Yeah, because this is an entrepreneurial audience, a lot of business leaders, owners. What are the, some of the key takeaways from that section of the book? Yeah, so I think the key the key takeaways would I mean there's there's so many because it's just so so full of you know information on what to look out for and how to think about it more more clearly. You know, one that comes to mind is has has you know many of us have have at some point thought that we're dealing with whether it's a uh, you know an employee or a boss of ours or some somebody who we're we're having to do a deal with, that we're dealing with somebody psychopathic, yeah. And we've probably said you know I just think this person you know complete psychopath. We've all made those kind of extreme judgments. So there's actually a chapter on there that goes look here's what we're actually talking about. If you're talking about sociopath or psych or psychopath. Here are the elements that you might look out for, but understand we all have some of those elements. What would need to happen in behavior for you to truly be able to go, right, this is a very dangerous personality that I'm dealing with now. And understanding that those that have that dangerous personality are extraordinarily good at manipulating you so you don't see it. So what is it that you're going to need to look out for in order to know that you maybe are doing a deal with somebody who essentially is going to con you. And just to give you some insight into that, the best indicator of that is that you feel really confident around them, yeah, that you have done a brilliant deal with them, and essentially you maybe have conned them. You're going, I can't believe the great deal I got out of this person. Yeah, I'm really one up on this person. The confidence trickster essentially gets you very confident in yourself. They're able to find out very quickly or over time what it is that you most desire, you most want in order to get you feeling very, very good about yourself. And they will give you that. And the deal will be too good to be true. In fact, people around you, when you explain the deal, because you will, you'll go, I'm doing this great thing with this person. It's going really well. It's, it's like, it's extraordinary. Can't believe. How, and they'll go, yeah, it seems too good to be true. And you'll say things like, yeah, but you see, this one's different. This is different. Yeah. And I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I know a good deal and I know a bad one. Believe me, when people around you are saying it's too good to be true, just check yourself and just check how inflated your, for want of a better word, ego is getting because it's quite possible, you know, it's a good gamble in this situation that you're now being manipulated. I just say <laughs> you've been Bernie Madoff in that sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look, Mark, it's been a pleasure. The hour's gone by super quick. Really enjoyed talking to you today. 
In the last minute or so, where can people find out more about you, about Truthplane, a communications company that you have, and of course, the book, Truth and Lies? Yeah, so best way, easiest way is just to put the word Truthplane, T-R-U-T-H-P-L-A-N-E, Truthplane, put it into a browser, and I'll be all over you. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a word that I coined almost specifically so that you can always find me in the work that I'm doing. So put in truth plain and you'll find me or put in the word Mark Bowden, my name, or put in truth and lies and you'll come across me in some way. Also highly recommend the Mark Bowden TEDx talk. It's really entertaining. 20 minutes of good insight, lots of laughs, real good watch as well. So highly recommend listeners to check out your TEDx. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time today. Adam, thanks for having me. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is sponsored by Scriberbase, experts in subscription e-commerce. Visit Scriberbase.com for more details. Indochino, made-to-measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric Acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid.